As I think most of you know, uh, David and I did a pulpit swap this weekend. He's uh, in Tawano, near Williamsburg, and uh, I'm here with you all in Blacksburg, and honored to be here. And um, the church at Tawano, near Williamsburg, sends you greetings. We're a small in number, but trusting God for great things, and I know that David and Katie will have a great time with them. If Blacksburg is like uh, Jerusalem, we're probably not the uttermost parts of the earth there in Williamsburg, but we're someplace in between Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's a little bit of a drive to get here. We'll be looking at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the last uh, chapter, uh, verses 16 to 20, and I'll be reading that for you in a minute, but I just want to send a little context for you. The Gospel of Matthew reaches its climax with Matthew's account of the disciples' sole post-resurrection encounter with the risen Christ. He has only one record of a post-resurrection encounter with the disciples, and it occurs here in this chapter. While our text shares several themes with the other Gospels, it's also very distinct. Both angels and Jesus himself direct the disciples to meet Jesus, and they worship him. Yet some doubt or hesitate for reasons that Matthew doesn't really explain in his gospel, so we don't really know what was going on there. But on the mountain where Jesus met them, he gave them a charge, which we, I think, fittingly call the Great Commission. Since it charges them and every generation of the church worldwide to a task of making disciples by planting churches. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter, starting with verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Lord God, let the words of your servant's mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I don't often start with illustrations, but I thought I would this time because it's a particularly interesting one. Um, Everybody's familiar with Coca-Cola, although I'm a Pepsi person myself. It's a product that has far outgrown its humble beginnings. Um, In 1886, uh, Dr. John Pemberton first introduced Coca-Cola in Atlanta, Georgia, right? Which is the headquarters of the company. I mean, he's, he was a pharmacist, and he concocted this caramel-colored syrup in a three-legged brass kettle in his backyard. And uh, he first distributed Coca-Cola by carrying it in jugs down the street to a local pharmacy to sell. But after a little more than maybe 120 years now, surveys show that 97% of the world has heard of Coca-Cola. 72% of the world has seen a can of Coca-Cola, And 51% of the world has actually tasted a can of Coca-Cola. All because the company made a commitment to a vision years ago that everyone on the planet would have a taste of their soft drink. 
Yet, while 97% of the world has heard of this sugary, watery concoction, which probably isn't good for you, <laughs> over 3 billion people in 7,165 no, 7, unreached people groups have no access to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that mission isn't just that worldwide mission of unreached people that have never heard of, this, of the Lord Jesus Christ or don't even have the scriptures in their language. It's right at your doorstep. And as Acts 1.8 talks about, it's not just your doorstep, it's your Samaria, your Judea, and your uttermost parts of the earth that God has called us to take the message of Christ. Now, it's certainly more difficult to share Jesus Christ than to market a can of Coke. But the immeasurable significance of the unfinished task before us should challenge and motivate and inspire us, I think, to a new level of commitment to God's vision. Have we become so familiar with the Great Commission? I mean, all of us have heard it, we've read it, we've seen it. Have we become so familiar with it, but rationalizing it away or interpreting it, its meaning in such a way that we feel comfortable that we have met its demands? I know that's true of me. I've read it, I've heard it, I've prepared for preaching it, but in many ways I'm comfortable with it. Um, and maybe not as challenged as I need to be. Although being in a church planning situation, I'm reminded of this kind of constantly, that that's what church planning is. So this vision to win the world so gripped the, the hearts of 11 uneducated, frightened men that they took on the task of taking the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to the farthest corners of the world in the face of persecution, all but one died a martyr's death, without the help of mass communication or easy travel. Why did they do it? Because they knew that the ultimate goal of the church is worship. We sang that this morning in one of our hymns, till every nation adores him. It's the ultimate goal of uh, the Great Commission is that the church, uh, plant churches so that people come to worship him. And it is, we do that by making disciples through planting churches, which is the means to that end. So this morning, what exactly is the Great Commission? Although we think we understand it and we know it, I think we can answer that question by examining two things. One, the character of the commissioner in verses 16 to 18, and then we're going to take a look at the components of the commission in verses 19 to 20. So the character of the commissioner, that is the one who gave us the commission in verses 16 to 18, and the components of the commission in verses 19 to 20. So first, Matthew in verses 16 to 18 describes the character of the commissioner. It wasn't anything about the disciples that encouraged the mission uh, success that they had, but rather things about Jesus, the one who gave the commission. We all know that. We sang it already this morning in many songs. It's not the disciples had anything special going on for them. It is that they had a special Savior, a Lord who was over all, that commissioned them to do um, what they were charged to do. So first, in verses 16 to 17, we see that Jesus is worthy of genuine worship. We sometimes miss this when we're reading um, through the Great Commission. In fact, I told, talking to one of the candidates that we are interviewing um, that I was coming to Blacksburg this weekend. He asked me what I was preaching on. I told him the Great Commission. I, he said, where are you going to start? And I said, I'm starting in verse 16. He said, oh, thanks for starting in verse 16. He says, well, so often we start in verse 18 and 19, and we, never, we just kind of skip over the context of it. And I said, no, I think it's important for us to understand that at the start of our passage, we read this. 
Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. That's the first thing they do. And Jesus commanded them to go. They go, they see Jesus, and the first thing they do, before Jesus gives them this commission, is that they worship him. The mission of the church arose out of worship, and is always centered on worship. Uh, Pastor John Piper wrote a book called um, Declare the, the, uh, the Glory, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. And it's one of the, it's probably now become a classic mission book. And you might think that he starts off where a lot of those missions books starts off with missions. But he starts off with this. He says it well. He says, worship is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. But worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. So worship is evangelistic in two ways, I think. First, the gathering of Christians to worship is a testimony of our faith to the degree that when we come here, we reenact or we rehearse the gospel. That's basically what we do when we come to worship. We rehearse the gospel message. We come enjoy uh, remembering all that God has done for us, but then when we come, we recognize our shortcomings. We recognize our need for a Savior. And so we come at a time of confession, and we receive that assurance of pardoning grace from the Lord. And then we're ready to hear his word and to receive that redeeming power in the scriptures, and then from there to go out and take the gospel with us when we leave. So to the degree to which we do that, it's a testimony to others around us of who Jesus is, and the gospel. You could have done other, like your non-Christian neighbors, you could have done a lot of different things this morning. You could have slept in. You could have gone out to play around to golf. You could have done different things. But you came to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and by that simple act itself, you make an ethical statement. You make a statement that says, I believe these things which I've committed to, to the degree that I will obey the Lord Jesus Christ and come and worship him with his people. As, a, as people without a... We want to come in a way that in God's presence that's not a humanly contrived performance. We don't come to perform. We come to worship, grounded in that reality of what Jesus has done for us. As people without a true knowledge of Christ come into our worship, they should be confronted not only with a clear message of the gospel in the things that we sing and the things that we read and the preaching of the scriptures, but they should also be confronted with a community that is radically different from the world around them. And I think as the world goes haywire, which if you haven't been listening to the news lately is going haywire, as the world goes increasingly haywire, they're looking for answers they can't find anyplace else but here. They don't know it. They're looking. They don't realize the answer is here. But they should be able to walk through the doors of the church, and I think that they can walk through the doors of this church and sense there's something different. Sense the community that you have here and sense the side-by-side -side ministry that God has called you to one another. And in that, they should be challenged to believe the gospel. Second, worship is also evangelistic because as our passion for Christ grows in worship, we are compelled to declare his glory among the nations. That's basically John Piper's thesis. As we help people to worship, as we worship together, and we are compelled by the, the passion of that worship then to go out and share 
the good news with others so that others might become worshipers of God. Missions will disappear in the end times when Christ brings everybody together around his, uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. What will not cease forever is the worship of God. And so I think he's absolutely right. Worship is the focus of the Great Commission because it starts with worship. They came, they saw him, they worshiped him. Second, in verse 18, we see that Jesus exercises cosmic authority. We kind of know that, you know, up here intellectually, right? Uh, Verse 18 reads, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God the Father gives Christ all authority over heaven and earth, making him the sovereign ruler of all creation. His authority has three impacts on the commission that we are given. First, we're reminded that Jesus has authority over every power in the universe, whether that's spiritual, whether it's demonic, or whether it's human. Therefore, as we fulfill his commission, we do not have to fear Satan or the opposition of men. I spent the last several months preaching through 1 Peter at, uh, at Williamsburg Church Plant. First uh, Peter is all about suffering persecution for the cause of Christ when people see uh, the gospel in you and they oppose it. We don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear the opposition of men. We need to know it's there. We need to be able to pray against it and counter it, but we don't fear it because Jesus Christ himself is the ruler of everything. Whether people recognize it or not is immaterial. I I teach ethics at Liberty University, and one of the things I remind my students of is um, is that God has it all under his control, and we don't have to fear that persecution, even though it'll come. And that even though people don't recognize Jesus as the Lord of the universe, he is still. Um, Even non-believers, I said sometimes our job and role as a a person using ethics is to connect with the unbelievers in ways where God has put it into the universe, his rules, not only his physical rules, but his spiritual moral rules as well. And people need to, to know those rules. And they have, to live by, they have to live by them. And when they disobey them, they face the consequences. But they don't always know why they face those consequences. And we have the, the why. Because Jesus is still on the throne. Second, no one out, is outside of Jesus' sphere of authority. He, he has authority even over those who do not yet know him. So it is he who is responsible for bringing fruit to our witness. Our success does not rest on clever marketing or catchy programs, but on the power and authority of Christ himself. Third, Christ's authority means that we are under his orders. Um, That's easy for an ex-military guy like me to understand, um, having been a person for 30 years under orders from somebody or giving orders. there's an ultimate order giver, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we are all under his orders. As Christians, we have to yield every area of our life to his lordship to include taking the gospel to the world and making disciples of all nations. Now, skipping down to verse 20b, the last part of verse 20, we see the third of these qualities that Jesus has. Jesus manifests a universal presence. Matthew writes, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has cosmic authority, and he promises to go with us to the edges of time and space itself. Neither duration nor distance dilutes Christ's presence. There are no barriers to his presence. 
There's no place we can go to hide from his piercing eyes of truth and judgment. We do not follow a Christ who is long gone. We walk with a Savior who is beside us all the way in every circumstance of life, one who empowers us to be obedient to his commands. The Great Commission is fueled by the worship of Christ, empowered by his authority and presence. But what exactly is the specific nature of that commission that Jesus gives us? We can answer that by looking at Matthew's descriptions in the last two verses of this text, in verses 19 to 20. The components of the commission, Jesus didn't give us an extensive, um, elaborate blueprint, but a simple commission with three basic parts. I think we make it more complex than it is uh, sometimes. Um, so Jesus didn't give us this, well, you have to do like A, and then you get the B, and then you have to get the C to do this. Okay? His commission is fairly, fairly straightforward, and we'll see that in just a minute. First, we are to make disciples of all nations. Um, the word make disciples is actually the only obvious imperative in the text. It's the only obvious one. You look at all the verses, and the only one that says, this, do this, is to make disciples. Even the word go, which often sounds like an imperative, could technically be translated as having gone. It's a, for those of you who are English majors, it's a participle. And teaching and baptizing are participles. They're I-N-G words. And so you look at them, and some translations, they don't translate them that way because, because the way they're connected with the make disciples, it gives them the same force of an imperative. These are all essential components of what it means to make disciples. So the word go, going, is actually better translated to go, and it kind of assumes that the church is not waiting for the world, but it's taking the gospel to them. And if you look at the, the history of the church in the book of Acts, you look at the works of the apostles, they took the gospel to the farthest corners of the world. Now, sometimes they had to, sometimes they had to be encouraged by God to do that, right? In the book of Acts, in chapter 7, a lot of the folks who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the high holy days were just then the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and the church receives its birth, more or less. All, they all are there for a long time. They don't go anywhere. Usually they go to the high holy days, and they go back to their places that they came from. And, uh, but they all are so amazed by what God is doing that they're kind of there, just enjoying the power of the Spirit of God falling on them. And then what does God do? Does anybody remember at the end of chapter 7? He sends persecution. <laughs> and scatters them all back to where they came from because he was basically saying, now take this message that you've heard and just don't camp here. You need to go out. And that's what they do. They, take, they go back to all the little villages all across the, the, what the known Roman Empire at the time. They take the gospel to those places. In its simplest, simplest definition, a, learner, a disciple is a learner. It's really what the word means is student or a learner, one who follows in the footsteps of his teacher. The picture is one of enlisting apprentices who learn to become craftsmen in the art of Christian living by first watching them uh, and then practicing under the tutelage of those who are more advanced. This is a lot like an apprenticeship in the trades today, whether it's plumbing or carpentry. You find someone who's a master, and you study under them, but you just don't learn facts you actually do. You actually do things until you become competent to be a craftsman in your own right. Jesus did that for the 12. 
Now he bids the 12 to do the same for others. And he calls each of us to make disciples, all of us. Now, we don't have to have a highly specialized seminary or Bible school training to do that. Simply, we simply need... Yeah, that's one of the bad things about preaching with an iPad is that sometimes I get things out here that are not supposed to be there. Um, We simply need to be willing to take people along the same paths of faith that we ourselves have walked and are continuing to walk. There's always somebody um, who becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or who's been a Christian for a while who's, who is not as far along in the faith as you are. And your role as a disciple maker is to find those folks and come alongside them and help them to continue to go a little farther. I think sometimes we make discipleship kind of like that's what super Christians do. You know, I've heard that actually from people. Oh yeah, well, you know, there's those of us in the church, we're faithful, but you know, disciple makers, they're like those people, right? The ones who really get it and really just they can they're super Christians. I said, no, that's actually not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, all of us are disciples makers. We disciple all the time. We're discipling each other here in this morning, and you'll disciple each other at the coffee hour, or you'll disciple each other in Sunday school, and oh, by the way, those of you who are parents are discipling your children all the time. At least I pray that you are. And you're either discipling positively or negatively. I mean, you're making students by their watching you and seeing how you live out that Christian life. So we need to be committed to growing in our own relationship with the Lord and then sharing the abundance of its benefits with those who need to be strengthened. And all of us at some time or another need to be strengthened. We all have our ups and downs spiritually. We need people to come side by side with us. Not just the pastors, not just the elders. They have a role. They have a very important role. But one another. You disciple each other and help each other to grow in the Christian faith. Second, we see in verse 19b that we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is that outward sign of an inward change that occurs through Christ's ministry in our lives. It's symbolic of our incorporation into Christ's body, our union with him. In this context, it's synonymous with becoming a disciple of Christ. It's also a reminder that the, of the centrality of the church to God's redemptive plan. Even just a cursory overview of the book of Acts and the New Testament letters reveals that the story of the gospel spread is the story of the spread of churches. I encourage you to read through the book of Acts and some of the letters even from Titus that we read this morning. How did the church go from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world? So that within 300 years, plus or minus, it overturned the Roman Empire. How did that happen? It happened because people went out sharing the gospel, and wherever the gospel goes, churches are planted, and elders are appointed. That was what Titus was about, right? Appoint elders in every city that I tell you. So what is he doing there? He is appointing elders to new churches that were coming on board. Now, in Tawano, Williamsburg, we're a small group. We have about seven families. We don't have our own elders yet. And, uh, but we have a borrowed set of elders, yours. They came down a couple months ago and 
met some of our, met our people and were there. Um, because until God appoints elders of our own to that church, he's given us your elders to shepherd, to guide us along the path. It's a little bit difficult for them, distance-wise, sure, four hours. They're not going to be there every Sunday or even every quarter, but they, we know we can reach out to them. And we know that we can ask, and they're helping right now, helping us go through the candidate process to find somebody to take the church full-time. Churches are at the center of God's Great Commission plan. We may lead people to Christ anywhere, but to truly disciple them, we have to incorporate them into the body of Christ, the church, the local manifestation of the body of Christ. And it's in the context of the local church that the authority for the practice of the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are found. The church isn't simply an outmoded carryover of the past. It is the primary extension of Christ into the world and the community of God's people through whom Christ is extended to the world. The concept of a Lone Ranger Christian unconnected to a local body of believers is just simply an unbiblical idea. I mean, I think kind of in COVID, some people kind of got used to the idea maybe that you could do that, right? And I have, unfortunately, run across people say, yeah, I'm a believer, but you know, I don't go to church. I just listen to the so-and-so on television or listen. Say, well, you really are not connected to the church until you're sitting in a pew with people next to you who are sinners just like you and are going to have issues and problems and you have issues and problems and iron sharpens iron a little bit and you, you're in this context together to work together as a body to take the gospel to Blacksburg and beyond. Until that happens, you're really not experiencing the church. The third thing that we see in verse 20 is that we're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. In the West, we have access to a wide variety of teaching venues, everything from podcasts to webinars to conferences. I know I've, I've taken a lot of them over the years. Um, and those are good. I'm not saying those are bad things. That's a good thing, that we have access to that. However, having access to knowledge is generally not the problem. Um, if you are like me, and I suspect you are, you probably know a lot more than you actually put into practice. Um, we know a lot. We, we are blessed in this country with a wide variety of uh, Christian knowledge. I mean, we have more Bibles on our shelves than some people have in their whole country, practically. Uh, it's just uh, difficult for us to see because it's so easy for us. But access is generally not the problem. The teaching that our Lord refers to here is not simply intellectual knowledge or simply rote memorization, although there are places for that, or just the, and it's certainly not just the mindless following of tradition. Christianity is more than a set of philosophical or theological ideas that can be embraced without obedience. Um, theology that isn't, that isn't obeyed, that isn't, uh, doesn't have a practical application, isn't truth theology. It's something else. It's not true theology, though. I know people say to me, oh, I don't get into theology because, you know, it's complex or divides people. I said, what do you... Theology is basically the application of God's truth to life. And if it isn't that, then it's something that's not really... It's just an intellectual exercise. You can go to... You, you go to a lot of seminaries in the country that claim to be Christian and certainly find out a lot of information about Christian things and even the Bible and not know Christ. I know. 
I did my THM work at Duke. Uh, Duke is a bastion of postmodernism. More than the, half the seminary professors were probably not believers. And, but, you know, they knew the scriptures. They probably could run circles around me. And, uh, and somewhere, in some ways, in the scriptures, they knew it, but they didn't believe it. Not the way that Jesus commands us, because he commands us to teach them to obey all things that I have commanded you. Jesus calls for radical inner transformation. He says we're to teach others to observe, that is to obey, to put into practice all that he commanded. We are to teach with a view to changing the course of people's lives and conforming them to the image of Christ. True teaching is teaching that transforms life. It's teaching that demands obedience, putting into practice the things that are taught. I love to teach. It's part of who I am. Uh, teaching is more natural to me than preaching. I go home after preaching and I'm tired. If I go, if I, I could teach a whole day long and not have a problem, you know, I'd be done at the end. I'm energized by it. It's, there's a, kind of a strange dynamic there. But it's not really effective teaching until the students actually do something with what they're taught. That's the role of the church. And I think it's the only place, it's the only place that can really happen the way God meant it to happen. Now, I've, I've been involved um, in um, different kinds of ministries over the years that were more parachurch, that is, they came alongside the church. They're, but that's why we call them parachurch. They come alongside, but they cannot replace the church. Unfortunately, I, some of the friends I had in college that were deeply involved in a parachurch ministry that, I, that God used in my life never made that connection. And once they left college, they didn't stay involved with the, with the body of Christ. Because we didn't help them, that is the leadership at the time, we didn't help them to make that transference that is, yeah, you can lead people to Christ anywhere, and you certainly can disciple people any place, but the true discipleship, true transformation, especially that which involves the means of grace, which include the baptism and the Lord's Supper, only happens in the context of the church. J.T. English, in his book, Deep Discipleship, writes, I believe with every fiber of my being that the local church is God's primary means of making holistic disciples of Christ. The local church is meant to be the primary spiritual guide for disciples who are on the journey of growing deeper in the love and knowledge of God. The local church is the place where we are formed, equipped, and sent out to make more disciples. And that's why I connected these two things in the sermon title, the Great Commission and Church Planting. I don't think you can ultimately fulfill the Great Commission until you start taking seriously God's call to plant churches. That's what every New Testament church did. They got a group of people and then you know they worshiped and then eventually somebody would be sent out and early on, it was the apostles and some of the young men that accompanied them, like uh, Barnabas and John Mark. But then the churches themselves began to expand, like to the next city, the next town, you know, the next regional place. That's why, you know, in Acts 1.8, it talks about, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So, 
Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. And the making of disciples through planting churches is the means to that end. I'm more convinced of it now than I ever have been. That if we want to reach the people of Blacksburg or Williamsburg, we need to be committed to planting churches of the Lord Jesus Christ who can fully take on that task of making disciples. It's not easy work. Ask anybody who's ever been a church planter. David had planted this church decades ago. And I know that it wasn't easy along the way to bring you to the point that you are now. I know from the three years working in Williamsburg that it's not easy. My wife and I actually met in a church plant, which is one of the reasons why I think we are so committed to that idea of church planting. But it's worth the work because it is where we are on the cutting edge of what God wants to do in the lives of people in making disciples. So this great commission is fueled by the worship of Christ and empowered by his authority and presence. And as Pastor Mark Devers has written in his book, Understanding the Great Commission, the Great Commission is normally fulfilled through planting and growing local churches. So the Great Commission involves you, the individual Christian, but the Great Commission also involves you through your local church. That is the normal way God means for us to go and make disciples, baptize, and teach. Jesus gave the whole church the responsibility for making disciples, incorporating them into his body as represented by baptism, and teaching them to observe all of his commands. As some of you know, you heard, I'm a retired army chaplain, and I'm a minister working at the Church of the Harvest ARP, a mission church that started about three years ago. You'll hear more about it if you come to Sunday school. I'll tell you a little bit more detail. But it's a plant which your congregation has graciously committed to supporting. At this support, at this point in time, we don't need any financial support. God has blessed us with that. Um, but we do need oversight from a, rule, uh, a session, and David and your session do that for us. And at some point, we're going we're gonna to call someone. I hope soon. <laughs> it's not that I don't like, love doing what I'm doing, but it wasn't what I was thinking I was going to be doing three years after we went down this road. I thought I was going to be more of the senior statesman of the church, you know, somebody who'd be like a mentor and coach to a younger guy who is coming in to do the work. Because in some ways, it's, uh, church planning is a younger person's kind of ministry. It really is. And I'm 67. Uh, and I said, you know, I-, I could do it, and I can preach, and I can do those things, and I can shepherd people. But, you know, I really want somebody younger. Because the next generation of folks is the, person, the people that I want to influence. And we've got some younger couples in our congregation. And uh, I want to see some young pastor in his 30s or 40s who has a, a long ministry ahead of them come in and find out that church planting um, has to be in your blood if you're going to be um, faithful to the Great Commission. And we're a church committed to the vision of discipleship and church planting. It is embedded in how we define ourselves. From the beginning, we have made it known to everybody who's come to us that we want to be a church that is committed to disciple pe- discipling people and planting another church. When we got to the size, when we were maybe 200 people, we wanted to be able to plant another church. And the great thing about it, God in his providence, 
um, and you can hear about this a little bit more in Sunday school, has given half of our congregation is, uh, is actually from the place we'd love to leap over and plant a second church when God blesses us enough to grow us. But you have to kind of keep that vision in your head at the beginning. And some of the people that have joined us have that vision. That's why they came to us. They came to us because they wanted to see a church committed to disciple-making and planting other churches. We define ourselves this way in one of the statements we, in our brochure. We said, we are a life-transforming community of reproducing disciples, seeking to glorify God by participating in his mission to redemptively engage people in the culture for Christ. We seek to reproduce churches in the tidewater committed to effective evangelism, intentional discipleship, and compassionate mercy. So when men and women accept the responsibility of the ministry of disciple-making, the church becomes an unstoppable force. When we take seriously all the one another passages in the New Testament for each other, and we disciple each other, we become an unstoppable force. Because we have the power of Christ with us. We're not doing this on our own power. If we're doing it on our own power, it, it can be stopped like that. But if we're really trusting in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said he is with us always, even to the end of the age, then we can do this in his power and we can see people's lives transform. And then when their lives are transformed, it's going to bleed over into your community. And you're going to see other people come to know Christ and you're going to have more people that you know what to do with and you're probably going to start another church. Although that's difficult. I know it's difficult because I, you know, I know it's difficult when you get together and God's doing things with you, you know, and somebody says, hey, why don't, you know, 25 of you or 30 of you go over here? Oh, boy. But maybe that, the next, that, maybe that 25 can go, right? Not, not, not my 25, but that 25 can go. Uh, it's hard, but I believe that's what God does and how he leaps from one place to another and starts other churches that can tend, in, intend to do the same thing. Because that's where you see the cutting edge of things happening. That's where you see, we made it clear from the beginning that we wanted to be a church that didn't, take, didn't grow by transferring people out of other churches. Never was our commitment. We, we were very quiet in the church we were attending at that point. There were people two years down the road that didn't know we had gone. Now, that might be because we weren't that visible in the church, but I don't think that's the case because I was teaching Sunday school and doing other things, and COVID had something to do with it too, but I th- we, didn't want the, we didn't want to drag people from that church. We want to see, we do pray that God brings us some people who are committed to discipleship and church planting who are more mature, who will come alongside of us. We need those kind of folks to be the leaders of the church. But we want the vast majority of the people in that church to be people who have never known Jesus Christ until they darken the doors of the Church of the Harvest. That's our vision. Because there are plenty of people out there. Williamsburg is a dark place when it comes to spiritual life. There are not that many. There are, you know, you can find churches on the corners and you can find them. Some of them are good. There are a few good churches. There There are definitely a few good churches there. But there are a lot more non-believers in Williamsburg than there are churches for them to go to. Which is why I think David, when he, three years ago, and the church planning committee came from the Virginia Presbytery, and they did all the demographics, and I worked with them on it, said, yeah, we ought to do this. We ought to put a church on the west side of James City County, where Williamsburg is located. Because there's a need there. And there's that need for just an evangelical conservative churches, let alone Reformed and Presbyterian. 
The question I think we have to ask ourselves, I need to ask myself, even though I'm involved in a church planning situation all the time, is how does the Lord want me, how does the Lord want you and his church, Redeemer, or Church of the Harvest, to be a part of that vision? How does he want us to be a part of his vision for his people and the nations of the world, starting with Blacksburg and Williamsburg and going to the uttermost parts of the world? That's a question I think we can, I'll just leave you with that question. How does the Lord want you, your church, to be involved with that great commission? It must have been important. It was the last thing that Matthew records in his gospel that Jesus says. And it's not just given to the apostles. It's given to the church as a whole, of which we are all a part, of which we all have a role. And sometimes you might say, well, I'm not that gifted of a person. I don't know um, this or that. But the fact of the matter is every one of you is needed in the body of Christ, or he wouldn't have called you to his body. He's got a place for you to serve. He's got a place for things for you to do. You don't all have to be people up front. Some of you might have a gift of prayer. I'd rather have maybe five or six of those folks than one of the persons who can come alongside me up there and preach. I'd rather have five or six people who are real prayer warriors uh, in that case. So, you know, all God, is, all God has gifted you all with gifts to use for his mission. How does he want you to be a part of that vision? Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We, we give you thanks that we can hear it and not just know it, but we can be doers of it. Help us to be like James challenges us in his, not just to be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. And give us a vision for your vision. Help us to see that the mission of the church is to go out and make worshipers of people who are deep, deeply in dark places now. So they might, at the end of the age, with all the angels and the elders as described in the book of Revelation, fall down before your throne and worship you for all eternity. Show us our part in that, for we ask it in Christ's name.